0: Okay, I got a cold last week after uh, uh, the service, and so I've been fighting for air all week. We'll see how it goes today. Uh, I'm premedicated, not premeditated, premedicated, so I think that'll be all right. Our discussions in Matthew are continuing the theme of the Sermon on the Mount, particularly those things related to the kingdom to come. Uh, Last week, we looked at Jesus entering Jerusalem and the events that indicated that Israel was not ready. In fact, the world was not ready for him. But that was not the only reason for the confusion. He was both the high priest of the new covenant, which would remove the sin of Jacob and of the whole world. But he is also the son of David and King Messiah. But they only sought the Messiah part of this. Uh, they were confused over the words of the prophets, uh, which is as problematic for us today with regard to how God is working through all these things. So Matthew gave us some understandings um, in that chapter and in this chapter, which I'm calling Kingdom Clarifications. So we begin at Matthew 22, the first 14 verses. Now this is in the context of Jesus talking to them and telling them that the leaders, uh, that the kingdom will be taken from you and given to a generation that will, uh, will uh, bring forth fruit. In other words, this is part of that imagery of the, of the tree that had leaves but no fruit. So the parable goes this way. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm and another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves And mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged. And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers. And set their city on fire. Then he said to his servants, his slaves. The wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways. And as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the street and gathered together. All they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came back to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, throw him into outer darkness, and the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now this parable of the kingdom is both very clear and very difficult. It's clear in that the location of the parable makes it really clear what Jesus is talking about. The king, obviously, is God. And God had uh, established with his servants, who would be uh, the leadership of Israel... uh, his wedding feast and his messianic kingdom that was to come. And when he told them to be prepared through the ministry of John the Baptist, they simply ignored it. He sent his servants down through the time, uh, and he was tr- the prophets would come and they would tell Israel to get ready and to obey the commandments and to do what God said. And they beat some of them and they killed some of them. And so uh, they ignored the command to follow the covenant. So he's now talking about when the wedding feast is ready for his son. uh, He's going to send them out not to that leadership, which is not paying attention, but to the people In general, those who are good and those who are evil, who are simply given word that the celebration of the king's son's wedding is taking place. And so they do that. This is, in a sense, the gospel message going out, and it will fill the hallway for the wedding supper. But in there is someone, as the king is looking, ...who is not wearing wedding clothes. And he is now going to uh, address that. That's the part that's not as clear. Um, Because this is where we run into a debate... ...about what are the wedding clothes. This gospel that will come to first to Israel... ...and then to the rest of the world will fill the wedding hall, uh, but will those from the good and evil that are called in there, will they respond appropriately? So, this statement made to the man without wedding clothes is debated about what are the wedding clothes. And there are some who believe that it's the profession of faith, And there are others who say, no, the scripture uses clothing as righteousness. And so he's not acting appropriate in that context. The reformers really tie this into election because of the last statement. Many are called, but few are chosen. But I think the church fathers got this right. (coughs) And if you look at their commentaries on this, They see in the wedding clothing that you are to put on love. And they quote Paul's statement. If I have all prophecy and I have all faith and I can speak with tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I am nothing. And so the idea is that being able to respond to this invitation, you are not the original invitees there ought to be some response that is appropriate to what you're being invited to. And you're being invited to love God and to love your neighbor and in the understanding of Jesus' great, his new commandment, to love one another. And so, uh, the church fathers saw the wedding clothing as love in the sense of actions of love towards God and towards our fellow man. Because faith without works is dead, being alone. Not that the wedding clothes saves someone, but that the one who has truly got faith given by God, that is, they are chosen, will love God out of gratitude and humility. The one who simply accepts the office offer for personal selfish reasons. With no sense. That he must be appropriate. To what he's invited to. Is the one. Who in this case is thrust out. And the text is very clear. The weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is clearly a reference. To eternal judgment. And so this parable. Is an understanding. In the context of the rest of what Jesus has been talking about. That those who who were supposed to be the recipients of this invitation and ignored it, will now be replaced by those who will respond appropriately to the invitation being given. Now, I'm not going to stop and do Q&A at the end of each section, because I'm trying to keep my air. So, we'll do we'll do the Q&A at the, at the final end of this thing. So, the next uh, section here picks up at verse 15. And it says, then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. I want to remind you that in most of these cases we are dealing with leadership and not with the entire group uh, in that context. Uh, Because there is in the church a tendency to use the word Pharisee the way the Jews use the word Samaritan. And that's not a... That's not a biblical view uh, of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are both good and evil in some sense, just like the rest of all human beings are in that context. But the leadership, both of the Sadducees and the Pharisees uh, over Israel, was not as much interested in what God wanted as in what they thought should be the the case. So they plot how um, they might trap him. Verse 16 says, They sent their disciples to him, so these are the disciples of the leaders of the Pharisees, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth, and defer to no one, and you are not partial to any. So tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give the poll tax to Caesar or not? And Jesus perceived their malice, and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, It's Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this... They were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. So here's the deal. <clears throat> the Pharisees' leadership sends their disciples to Jesus. They're not coming themselves. They send their disciples to Jesus to trap him with a question. Because if Jesus says you should pay taxes to Caesar, his loyalty is not to God, but to Caesar. you, you got this trap. And so Jesus, in brilliance and the wisdom of God, asked them for <coughs> the coin that's used to pay the tax. And on it is the likeness of Caesar. It bears the image of Caesar and the words of Caesar. And he says, Who's likeness and whose inscription? And they say, Well, it's Caesar's. And he says, So if it bears his image, and it has his words, give it to him. And give to God that which bears his image, and has his word, which is us. Right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your life, and all your strength. For we bear the image of God and we bear the word of God, his inscription in us. And therefore we give ourselves to God, we can pay a tax to the government. They're amazed and they're out of there. They're not going to argue with him at that point. Then what we have is Matthew tells us that the Sadducees, uh, who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus to question him. They said, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us. And the first married and died having no children. He left his wife to his brother. And also the second and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her, obviously having no children. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished. (coughs) Now, this is one of those issues where the groups... Pharisees versus Sadducees have differing beliefs. Pharisees, (coughs) closer to the disciples in that they believed in resurrection. The resurrection of the dead at the end of time. And therefore death was a temporary thing awaiting the judgment and resurrection. But the Sadducees don't believe in angels, don't believe in an afterlife... They just think this is it. That's one of the reasons they didn't want Jesus getting Rome upset with them. That's why the chief priests are the ones who give him over to Rome. They don't believe in resurrection. But they know the law of Moses and they know the commandments. And so they understood this Levi right commandment as allowing for The next generation and the next generation and the next generation. So, if a man dies and he has no children, his brother will marry the wife, and then the child, the first child, will be his and continue his line. The second child will be the brother's line. And so, this story is this woman, this man has six brothers. He marries her, he dies, the brother marries, he dies, the brother marries, and there's never a child. And therefore, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? You could almost hear them laughing. And Jesus says two things. You don't know the scriptures. And you don't know the power of God. First of all, let's talk about the scriptures. Marriage is about this creation. Marriage and reproduction takes place in this world and in this world only. In the resurrection, in the kingdom, he could have said. We will not be married. Uh, I don't want to get... you know. Some, there are people that say, otherwise it wouldn't be heaven. That's not true. <laughs> but the idea is that we will be in a resurrected state. And the need for procreation... Is not necessary because a generation won't die and the next generation come, And then they die and the next generation comes. Because we will live on. So there will be no marriage in heaven. That's not completely true. There will be one marriage. And that is the marriage of the Lamb and the Bride. Which is the church. Then he gets to them with this one. And this is the critical issue. He says... Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now that statement is made to who? Moses. God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Jacob, I am the God of Isaac. Right? Isaac and Jacob. Now, When does he say that to Moses? He says that at the burning bush. That is 400 years after Abraham has died. Now why doesn't God say, By the way, I was the God of Abraham. And I was the God of Isaac. And I was the God of Jacob. And I was the God of Joseph. And I am your God. He didn't say that. He said, I am the God of Abraham, he's still with me. I am the God of Jacob, he's still with me. In other words, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. The body dies, but the person remains. And so he says, you don't know the scriptures, They even the tints of the words matter, and you don't know the power of God, which is the ability to raise the dead. So, now what we get is a statement in verse uh, 34. It says, When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. So now we get a Torah teacher who's doing this. He says, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, you can see here why the early church fathers interpreted the parable of the man without the clothes as being related to these commandments. Because this seems to be the focus of the intent of the text. This is the danger of just reading a little bit of the text and not reading around it. But it's clear that what's going on here is that the more weightier matters, the things that are significant is that we focus on God whose image we bear whose word we have, and that we know the word of God, and the power of God, and therefore are appropriately ready to respond to the invitation. If somebody invites you to a certain kind of uh, situation, you're going to dress appropriate for it if you respect and care and are focused on what's going on. If you're just saying, well, there'll be free food, so I'll dress any way I want and I'll go in as I want to. You're not really there for the event. And that's really what this parable thing is about. Now, Jesus is now going to turn the, the uh, tide on them. And we look at verse uh, 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, so they're, this gathering doesn't mean they went somewhere to meet. They're huddling, trying to talk. What do we say? Well, you know, getting ready with that. So Jesus says to them, uh, what do you think about the Messiah, the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, they, they have the answer to that. He is the son of David. There is a struggle in Jewish historical thinking about the Messiah. Because there are biblical texts that sound like the Messiah suffers and maybe even dies. And then the Messiah is reigning. And they could not figure that out. This is one of the reasons why that generation and many generations (coughs) of Israel struggle because if Jesus is the Messiah, and that's usually what we say to him, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and they'll think, well, if he's the Messiah, he's the son of David. If he's the son of David, then he is going to rule and reign, and the world will, the evil in the world will stop and the lion, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the lamb won't be in the wolf, and all of that stuff should happen, and that hasn't happened. He can't be the Messiah. They are missing a piece. It's the piece that we sometimes miss... Because we pretend as if he's already ruling and reigning and doing all of that. And that's not true either. They're absolutely right about that. The things that the Messiah is supposed to do, Jesus hasn't completely done. Now, Christian theology says he does some things when he comes the first time... ...and he does some things when he comes the second time. But as we read the text earlier today the announcements of the gospel writers are looking at him sitting on the throne of his father, David. And that's the focus because that's the ultimate. But there's more to it than that. And Jesus is going to try to bring this out. He's already told them, you're not paying attention to the scriptures. You're not listening to the power of God. And so here's what he says. So he says to them, How then does David... In the spirit that is under inspiration, call him Adonai, call him Lord, saying the Lord. That first Lord is the uh, text uh, of the divine name. So it's the divine name of God, and the second Lord is Adonai. In the in the Hebrew, the Lord said to. Or Hashem said to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Adonai, how is he his son? The son does not call the father Adonai. The father does not call the son Adonai. The son calls the father Adonai, Right? But that's not what's going on here. Now, he's quoting Psalm 110. I want you to turn to Psalm 110. Very important to understand in the biblical context, whenever a verse is alluded to, it's usually kind of a hyperlink and not simply a, that's all the words we need. The assumption is that you know the rest of the text. And because you know the rest of the text... You have the impact of it. Now I could do that with you with with the 23rd Psalm, easy. My cup runneth over. And you know all the rest that's connected to that, right? Because you have that memorized. But we don't do that with a lot of the scripture, but they did. And that's the kind of conversations that are going on. So in Psalm 110, we have these words. Hashem, I'm using that for the divine name, says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Hashem will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So, God will tell this one called Adonai to rule in the midst of your enemies your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array... Oh, holy array? What is that? Proper clothing. See the context? In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. This is the part they're missing. You are a priest forever forever according to the order of Melchizedek, or Melchizedek. Hashem is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. will shatter the chief men over the broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, He, meaning the Lord, will lift up His head. The imagery here, is that this one that David calls Adonai is the one that is the Messiah. And not only is he the Messiah, but he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. He cannot be a priest of the Levitical group. And they die. This is what the book of Hebrews is constantly saying. He is the high priest of the priesthood in heaven. Therefore, David, because he is not merely his son, he is the Lord, can call him Adonai. That becomes a stumbling block for Israel because they don't fully understand this connection. And so, the Lord is trying to give that to them. There are four assertions in this psalm. That the Lord calls David's person Adonai. That this one will rule over his enemies. So, we know that this is the Messiah, son of David in that sense. But he is also a Melchizedek priest And that he will be ultimately exalted by God. Which is what the Philippians 2 passage talked about today. All of that in one little psalm. You do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, that is a condemnation of the Pharisees at the time of Jesus. At least their leadership. I would say that that's probably also a serious problem for us. We do not, we have a tendency to think that most of these words aren't important. Just tell me the five verses I need to know. Give me the 10 verses that everybody has to know. And the reality is, God gave us 66 books. And we ought to be pouring over them. And as you do that, and I know many of you do that, every time you read, you go, oh, and that's connected here. And you begin, it begins to move from kind of a one-dimensional thing to multi-dimensional, to a movement, to depth that you didn't see before, and you wondered how you didn't see it. And then you suspect that there's a greater depth and a greater understanding I don't know what it does for you. But what it does for me is it tends to make me not trust that where I am in my knowledge of the word is close to the end. I'm nearer to the end than when I first started but I'm still a babe in the word of righteousness. And I'm needing To make sure that I go through it and go through it. And I look for it to teach me. Instead of just looking for a verse that proves what I already believe. Which is a tendency we have in the church. Now they're not able to answer this. They are understanding the Torah's greatest commandment. And they know that the Messiah is the son of David. They have knowledge of the law and the prophets. But they don't fully know the scriptures nor the power of God, and I think that should behoove us to work on that ourselves and we're going to see that Jesus is going to move into explaining this hypocrisy that these Pharisees are doing. remember he said, be careful of of the uh, that you don't get taken in by their hypocrisy." Uh, I I think we sometimes follow after that hypocrisy. We're going to talk about that next week. Uh, But I think it's really important to see these entire chapters together... ...so that we begin to see that these are not just little... ...here's a little event of Jesus... ...and here's a little event of Jesus... ...and here's a little event of Jesus. The gospel writers are weaving together... ...in the life of Jesus and in his ministry and words... All of the scriptures in order for us to have a fuller, richer understanding. So even though we're going through Advent and we've done it before and we've read these verses before. I'm telling you there is more to see if you'll look at them with eyes of faith and in humility. So I'm hoping that that uh, is helpful. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll do a a Q&A. And then we'll be done because I'm out of air.